Well, good morning. Before uh, I start my new series, and uh, let me begin by saying that I want to welcome those who are watching us at Mill Creek, our second campus. We're one church at uh, two locations. We got a campus about 20 minutes north of us here. And those of you who are watching online, you're, that thing's growing by the week. And I would encourage you to come and check us out at one of the campuses closest to you and see how God is moving in our church. Before we start this new series, let me take a moment and kind of give you an update on uh, our Be More campaign. If you remember, two weeks ago, I shared with you that in 2016, we're doing two big things in our church. Number one, we're going to be finishing our children's, uh, new children's area, which we desperately need. We're going to be starting on that the first of the year, and we're going to be finishing that up. And it's going to be one great, great facility for our kids here at Sugarloaf. And then our Mill Creek people will finally be moving out of Mill Creek High School and they'll be going to a, the venue at Friendship Springs, which is absolutely one of the greatest locations we could have found where we're planning that campus. So I asked those of us uh, who were present at both of our campuses to prayerfully consider joining us in giving to the Be More campaign. These are people who were not even here when we started the campaign. And I just wanted to tell you, we were so thrilled that uh, the yeses that we got across the board. A lot of you re-upped and, and said, yeah, I want to give what I pledged to give. We had quite a few people who said, you know what, we pledged this, but we want to give an additional amount over our current pledge. And then we had a lot of people who said, I didn't even know what this was about, but you can count me in. And so we received, listen to this, added commitments just over the next 12 months of $156,000. And so, yeah, just give, that, that just was great. We didn't know what to expect. It's going to be a big help. Now, if you were not here that day, I just want to ask you to consider to make, making an eternal investment uh, in the Be More campaign and what we're trying to do. And I think all of you received this card. If y'all get this card, can y'all kind of hold this card up and make sure you got was in your worship guide? Okay. Everybody got this card? If you've not yet joined our Be More campaign, if you would just pray about what God would have you to do, you could take that card, fill it out, and then you could just uh, drop it in one of our offering centers before you leave, and uh, you could be a part of what God is doing here in our church. Uh, how many of you have seen the movie Avatar? How many of you saw the movie Avatar? All right. How about Titanic? Titanic? Uh, Transformers. It's all Transformers. Okay. How about Gravity? Some Gravity. How about The Life of Pi? Saw The Life of Pi. Okay. Now, let me tell you why I picked those out. They're more than just blockbuster films. According to IMDb, those are some of the top 10 films that you have to see in 3D. And you'll know this because if you ever go to movies like I do from time to time, there are some movies that are so um, picturesque, They're, the choreography is so unique, it is so epic, it is so cinematic, it's so breathtaking, it's so beautiful that you just have to go see them in, in a three-dimensional format to get the, the full effect. I'll tell you a movie I just recently saw that if you got to see, I hope you saw it in 3D, it's the movie Everest. It's the story of how some men died trying to climb Mount Everest. I, it was so real when I saw it in 3D. It was just like I was there. As a matter of fact, Teresa and I both watched it. We actually got cold sitting in our seat. It was so real because, you know, they're up there at 26,000 feet and they're, and, they're, and they're freezing to death. And, and it was just this 3D experience that you don't just get just by watching it on an ordinary screen. Well, the entire concept of 3D viewing to me is just fascinating. Let me tell you how they came, came up with this concept. As you know, 
Human beings generally come equipped with one head and two eyes, right? If you ever meet someone with two heads and one eye, get them to the hospital. They need a doctor. Most of us, generally speaking, come with one head and we come with two eyes. Now, we're different, however, from, say, a horse and a mosquito. Horses have two eyes and mosquitoes have two eyes, but they're on the side of their head. We have two eyes, but they're on the front of our head, and that's very important. Because our eyes are in such close proximity, we, take a, uh, we, we can take the same view of, of, of a same area, but it comes at a slightly different angle. So in other words, my left eye is picking up visual information right now that my right eye is not seeing, and my right eye is picking up visual information right now that my left eye is not getting. Now, as each eye captures its own view, this is so wonderful how God created us, it takes, our brain takes those two separate images, and those images are sent to the back of our brain simultaneously, and, and the brain processes that, unites it into one picture, and the result is we're seeing a three-dimensional picture. So right now, I'm not looking at you in one dimension or two dimensions. I'm seeing you in three dimensions. You're seeing me in three dimensions because we are three-dimensional people. Now, here's the interesting thing. Here's what's really so amazing. What, what, what physiologists and doctors call this is seeing in stereo vision. Now, the word stereo comes from the Greek word stereos, which means firm or solid. So in other words, when you're looking at something with stereo vision or you're looking at something in 3D, you're actually seeing it the way it ought to be seen. You're seeing it in three spatial dimensions, right? So there's three dimensions to all of us. There's height, right? There's height. And, and, and then there is width, right? Some of us are wider, some of us not so wide, but there's width. And then there is depth. Some of us are very deep, some not so deep, all right? So we've got height, we've got width, we've got depth. And, it, and, and what makes 3D so special is when you go to see an ordinary movie, you see the height and you see the width, but 3D allows you to see the depth. So you're seeing the depth of something. You're seeing it in 3D. That's what makes it so very, very special. Now, I set all that up to say this. As we were thinking a year ago about our Christmas series this year, I got to thinking about 3D. And I was sitting downstairs in my study, and, and it hit me that Christmas really is in 3D. And I told our staff, I said, I want to do a series. I want to call it 3D Christmas. And so they, they'll always challenge me. Well, flesh that out. Why do you want to do it? And I said, I'll tell you why. I said, just like most of us, we go to a movie, we only see it in 2D. I said, I am absolutely convinced that the vast majority of people, whether they come to church or not, whether they believe in Jesus or not, whether they know the Bible or not, the vast majority of people only see Christmas in two dimensions. They never see Christmas in the 3D dimension that it really should be seen in. And let me explain why I believe that. When we think about Christmas, we always think about two questions. There are always two questions that we ask about Christmas, all right? The first question we ask is, when? Okay, 
Christmas is coming. We, and so we start marking our calendars. We plan our gatherings. We do our shopping. We count down the days until it finally arrives. And you know, thanks to Black Friday and aggressive advertisers, that they let us know that Christmas season is coming and they stretch it out more and more and more. And you may be even like me, you know, you didn't want to let it go. And so you may be like me. Maybe you're still playing Christmas music after Christmas. And you know, I remember two years ago, you ready for this? We didn't take our Christmas decorations down to the first week in March. Now, don't tell anybody I told you that, but we sometimes just kind of stretch Christmas out, and, and you know, we tend to do that. But, but it's because we're answering the question, when? And, 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 and advertisers do a great job of reminding us of when it's coming. So that's why they play the music earlier. That's why they decorate earlier. That's why they advertise earlier. They want us to know Christmas is coming. They want us to be thinking about what, you know, when it's going to get here and what we need to be doing, which leads to the second question. And the second question we always ask ourselves about Christmas is, what? All right, what are we going to get for other people? And what are we going to get from other people? What are we going to cook for all those family members that are going to come to our holly jolly homes? And then for most of us, that's where our thinking stops. We solve the when of Christmas, and we solve the what of Christmas. So we see Christmas in 2D. But there's a third dimension of Christmas. There's a third question that most people that will go through this Christmas season never think about. It will never cross their mind. It will never get on their radar screen. It, it'll never even flash in front of their brain. And that question is, why? Why do we do this every single year? Why do we celebrate Christmas? Why do billions of people at this time of year celebrate the birth of a baby who was born in a nondescript town in a relatively meaningless country, and then he was born 2,000 years ago when he's not even here today. Why do we do that? There was a professor in a law school and he used to start the first class every year by putting two numbers on a blackboard. He'd put up the number four and then he'd put up the number two. And then he would ask this question, all right, what is the solution? Well, one student would cry out, uh, two. And he would say, that's not it. And one, question, one, one student would cry out, six. And he would say, that's not it. And then one student would cry out, eight. And the professor would say, no, that's not it. And then when they were done guessing, he would point out their one fatal error. He would say, now listen, this is why you're in law school. I don't want you to ever forget this. He said, there's one reason why you, neither one of you, none of you have found the solution. And the reason you haven't found the solution is because you failed to ask the most important Question, what do you think that question is? What is the problem? You cannot find the solution till you understand the problem. And unless you know what the problem is, you will never find the solution. Now, as the great philosopher and theologian Bart Simpson once said, he said, Christmas is a time when people of all religions come together to worship Jesus Christ. Now, the question is begged, but why did Jesus come to earth? Why do we even have the story of Christmas? Why do we always give almost two months now to this little baby that was born in a manger thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago? Why was Jesus born? Why do we celebrate it? Why Christmas? And here's what I want to share with you this morning. The answer actually lies in three places. The world that we live in the heart that's within us, 
and this book called the Bible. Now, let me tell you what I mean. If you ask anybody this question, why do you think you're here on this earth? What do you think your purpose is? There's generally one question almost everybody, or one answer almost everybody will give you. Doesn't matter whether they're Christian or not Christian. Doesn't matter whether they go to church or not, religious or not, doesn't matter. They'll think about it, and here's what they'll say. Well, I think I'm here to make this world a better place. When I leave here, I want to make sure the world's better than it was when I left it. Well, but that begs a question. Why do we need to make the world a better place? Because deep down in our hearts, we know something. Deep down in our hearts, we know something's not right with this world. When we look at our world deep down, we know this world is not what it could be. This world is not what it should be. Because there's one thing we see. We see evil in the world. Even if people use a different word to describe it, we see evil in this world. We see moral evil. We've been watching it this week. We see moral evil, terroristic attacks on innocent people, war, crime, discrimination, racism, injustice. We see moral evil. We see natural evil, cataclysmic events like uh, hurricanes and tsunamis and floods and, 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 and earthquakes and tornadoes kill innocent people every year. We see social evil. We see people in poverty, people going hungry, people that don't have clean water, people who are homeless. And, and so we look outside our windows and we say to ourselves, there is something wrong with this world. And then when you quit looking out the mirror and you start looking, in the, uh, looking out the window and you start looking in the mirror, you say, there's something wrong with us. Why do we do things that we know we shouldn't do. Why did we, why did we commit the sin of gluttony Thanksgiving Day, knowing we were going to do it? Why did we go back for that leftover turkey leg when we'd already eaten the whole breast? Why did we do that? And why do we not do things that we know we ought to do? Why are we always falling short of our own self-proclaimed standards of, of, of decency and righteousness? So we look out the window and we say, there's something wrong with this world. And then we look in the mirror and we go, there's something wrong with us. And now we're getting to the why of Christmas. Because contrary to popular belief, the Christmas story does not actually begin in the Gospels. And the Christmas story doesn't actually start about 2,000 years ago. The story of Christmas actually begins in the beginning, in the first book of the Bible. And it begins in, of all places, a garden, the Garden of Eden. If you brought a copy of God's Word or a smartphone or an iPad, I want you to turn to the very first book of the Bible. This will be easy today, Genesis. I want you to turn to the third chapter of Genesis. While you're turning, let me just kind of set all this up. You know, as Americans, we've adopted all kind of cultural tales about Christmas, right? So you'll, you'll, you'll watch TV, and they'll, in fact, I taped it for my grandchildren. They, they, they show it every year. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, right? And, and you've got a Peanuts Christmas. And, and so we, we, we talk about Christmas, and you'll hear songs about Santa Claus and Frosty and Jack Frost and, and Rudolph. And let me just say right up front, there's nothing wrong with all those characters. There's nothing wrong with stories about them. There's nothing wrong with the songs that we sing about them and all of that. At the same time, we also have to recognize there is a deeper and an older story at the heart of Christmas. 
And believe it or not, the story of Christmas does not begin with Jesus. It doesn't begin with Joseph, and it doesn't begin with Mary. And by the way, it certainly doesn't begin with Santa Claus and Frosty. The story of Christmas actually begins with two people, one named Adam and one named Eve. Now, these two people were at perfect peace with God. They lived at a time when there was peace on earth and goodwill to all men because there were only two of them. And they were perfect peace. They had, a, they had marital peace. There was no politics going on. There were no armies. There were no navies. They had tranquility. They were at peace with God. They were at peace with each other. And they lived in a perfect place on earth. But then something happened that plunged this world into the conflict that we're still fighting today and I believe is the cause of every single problem on this planet. And here's what I want you to understand this morning. You will never understand what happened in Bethlehem and you will never understand why we celebrate it until you understand what happened one day in that garden called Eden. You know, the first mention of a Christmas celebration, you probably may or not, may or may not know this, but Christmas wasn't even celebrated until around 300 A.D. So for the first two or 300 years after Jesus came, we didn't really celebrate Christmas at all. But the roots of the Christmas story go back to well before the birth of Jesus. Because you see, the story of Christmas is, a, is just an integral part of a much greater story that goes all the way back to the very beginning of the human race. And the Christmas story is actually God's solution to the world's greatest problem. Now, you may be asking, wait a minute, time out. I just got a question here. How can you have a Christmas story before Jesus even came? Well, that's why you have to see Christmas in 3D. That's why you have to, have to understand there's not one dimension or two dimensions. There are three dimensions to Christmas. And now we're going to get into them because the story of Christmas basically can be boiled down to three words. You want to write these down. This will be a good lesson to teach your kids and your grandkids. If, you, if they say, hey, I want to tell you the story of Christmas, but I want to tell you in a way you've never heard it before. Teach your kids and grandkids to remember three words and they'll see Christmas in 3D. This is what the Christmas story is all about. Number one, it's about sin. Number two, it's about a savior. And number three, it's about salvation. Now, that's what the Christmas story is all about. It's not about the trees. It's not about the tinsels and the toys and Rudolph and the bags of toys and the North Pole. The real story of Christmas deals with sin, Savior, and salvation. And you will never understand Christmas until you see it in 3D and until you understand this. All right, listen. This is what I want you to take out the door. This is Christmas in a nutshell. The Christmas message is sinners need a Savior. That's Christmas. Sinners need a Savior. Now, as we turn to Genesis chapter 3, there are three things I want you to see that Christmas does for us, and there are three things that Christmas brings to us, and it's why Christmas is, not, is so much better than we even think it is. It's so much more than our kids are taught that it is. It really is a 3D Christmas. You ready? Number one, Christmas solves our problem of sin. Christmas solves our problem of of sin. Now, as we pick up this story in Genesis 3, I want you to keep something in mind. Adam and Eve lived a life we don't know anything about. Adam and, life, Adam and Eve lived a life we would like to live. We would like to experience what they experienced because to, to give you a word that's not in the Bible, but we could use it, they lived in utopia. They were a perfect people. 
They lived in a perfect environment. They experienced perfect peace. They had a perfect relationship with God. Can you just imagine for a moment growing up in a world where you don't know anything about crime, murder, rape, robbery, stealing, lying, terrorism, lust, bitterness, anger, anxiety, sickness, hurricanes, tsunamis? Can you just think about a world with no credit card debt? And no IRS. Think about it. They lived in a perfect world. As a matter of fact, you know what the word Eden means? The word Eden means delight. That's all they knew was delight. Everything was coming up roses. And then we read this happen in Genesis 3 verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you, say that word out loud, die. We're going to come back to that in a moment. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, without going into too much detail, let me just say something at this point in the story, okay? At this point in the story, all there's been is just conversation. There's been no harm. There's been no foul. Just talk. But now, two seeds have been sown in the mind of Eve. He's sown the seed of doubt. I mean, can you really trust God's word? And then he's sown the seed of distrust. Is God trying to keep you from something you ought to have? Is God trying to keep you from knowledge that you ought to no. And as long as those seeds are left alone, as long as you just plant the seed of doubt and you plant the seed of distrust, as long as you don't water them or you don't cultivate them, they will not bear the fruit of disobedience. So at this point, nothing really has gone wrong. But now we come to the pivotal moment, not just in this conversation, but for the world, for you and for me and for your kids and your grandkids and for the entire human race because this is where the battle for the future of this world and the people that live in it will be won or lost because Satan did remind them of something. He didn't quite tell it accurately, but he did remind them. When God put Adam and Eve in this garden, in this garden he didn't miss words. He wasn't ambiguous. He made it plain as black and white. It's all yours. Enjoy it. It's full of delight. That's why I named it Eden. However, in the day, if you do, in the day you eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will, what was that word? Die. Let me just stop right there. That was a word that the human race was never meant to hear ever again. As a matter of fact, I'm pretty sure that Adam and Eve looked at each other and said, what, what, is, what does die mean? And Adam probably said, I don't know, but it doesn't sound good. And I just don't think we want to go there. But they were never, ever meant to hear it again. And now we witness the second greatest tragedy in a way, the second greatest tragedy that's ever happened in the history 
of this world because it put the world in the mess that we're in today. This is why we look outside and go, this is not the way it should be. This is why we look in the mirror and go, this is not the way we should be. This is what happened. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Now what you just are reading right there is a description of what the Bible calls sin. First sin ever committed. Now, I realize, I get it. We're living in a postmodern age, we're being told, and we are. And we're living in this in a world where the word sin's fallen out of favor and it's even ridiculed. People make fun of it. But there are people right now that if they were sitting in this room, there are a lot of elitists out there. They'd already tuned me out and turned me off. They'd say, I can't believe in the 21st century you're talking about sin. Well, we all believe in it. We just call it different things. We call it a mistake. Or we'll call it a misjudgment. Or we'll call it a, 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 a judgment we made in error. That's okay. God calls it sin. And for each of us individually, this is what sin is. Sin is simply disbelieving the Word of God and disobeying the will of God. For each of us individually, that's what sin is. When you don't believe the Word of God and you disobey the will of God, that is sin. Now, here's what happened. When they sinned for the first time in human experience, evil was introduced to this world. Now, God knows what evil is because of his omniscience. He knows everything. But now... Adam and Eve, and because of them, we, now we know what evil is because of experience. God knows what it is to see evil. We know what it is to be evil. And immediately, Adam and Eve feel things they were never meant to feel before. They feel shame. They, they realize all of a sudden we're naked and they clothe themselves. They feel separation. They know something has happened to their relationship with God and it's not the same and so they run and they hide themselves. And then they feel sorrow. They know they've blown it. They know that things will never, ever be the same again. And from the moment that that incident took place, from that very moment until now, Everything and everyone has been infected and defected by sin. So roses now have thorns, and cities now need policemen, and airports now need metal detectors, and nations now need armies and navies, and the world needs cemeteries to bury the dead. Because of what happened that fateful day, there is a hole in the soul of humanity that can only be filled by what a little baby brought to Bethlehem, to this world, 2,000 years ago. And see, Christmas tells us that all that's going on right now on the outside of the world can only, it can only be solved by treating what's wrong with the inside of the world. The heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. So when you look at moral evil and natural evil and social evil, what I want you to understand is this, those are all symptoms of the problem. Our greatest problem and our greatest threat is not terrorism. And it's certainly not climate change. God help us. Makes me hot just thinking about it. Our greatest problem is sin. And if we don't see with a sin problem, we're not going to deal with any other problem because those 
are the symptoms. The problem is sin. And the reason why that baby was born 2,000 years ago, Jesus didn't come into this world to deal with the symptoms. He came into this world to deal with the problem. And we go all the way back to Genesis, and we know the problem is sin. So number one, Christmas solves our problem of sin. Well, how does Christmas do that? Number two, Christmas meets our need for a Savior. Christmas meets our need for a Savior. Now, here's what I love about God. God never leaves a problem unsolved. God doesn't wait on a lab report. He doesn't need anybody, anybody's counsel or advice. The problem of sin has now entered into the universe. And what does God do? God immediately gives the solution. And what is the solution? You ready for this? It is wrapped up in a single verse that carries within it the hope of the entire world. Here's the verse, Genesis 3, verse 15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your, he's talking to the serpent, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Let me just leave that up there for a moment. I want you to hear this. If you're, in, if you're into prophecy, and a lot of people are, this is the first prophecy you'll find in the Bible. This is the first promise that you find in the Bible. As a matter of fact, even more than that, that really is the first gospel message you will find in the Bible. Because even more than that, it's the story not just of Christmas. It is the story of Jesus Christ, and it's our story. Because it's both a promise of someone who's going to come and rescue us from our sin, and it is a prophecy of the one that's going to come and do it, and his name is Jesus. Now, I personally think this verse is the heartbeat of the Bible. You say, why do you believe that? Because beginning with verse 16, all the way through the rest of the Bible, here's what you're going to read. How God kept his promise and how God fulfilled his prophecy. That's what the rest of the Bible is about. The rest of the Bible tells us God made a prophecy, God made a promise, and the rest of the Bible tells us how God fulfilled that prophecy and how God kept that promise. How did he do that? Well, you notice the word here, offspring. He talks about your offspring and her offspring. Interesting. Literally in the Hebrew language, that word is the word seed. And it refers to the physiological part of the man that allows the woman to conceive and give birth. Now you can imagine for century after century after century, ancient Jewish rabbis and ancient Jewish biblical scholars, they would read that verse and they would scratch their head because they'd say, wait a minute, that doesn't make any biological sense. The woman has the egg, not the seed. It is the man that has the seed. As a matter of fact, that word, offspring or seed, is used over 300 times in Scripture and all except one time, guess where? There. All except one time, it's used to describe the seed of a man. And yet, God promises he's going to send someone who's going to rescue us from our sin problem, who's going to defeat Satan. He's going to be born from a woman. Except in all the rest of the scripture, you'll read children are born from the father. But you don't read about a father here. And the implication is, okay, so this person is not going to have a biological father. That's correct. Furthermore, 
The word seed, when it's used in Scripture, means children. Now, when the word is singular, as it is here, it always denotes a specific descendant of someone else. And when it's individual, as it is here, it always refers to the pronoun is always masculine. So when you put all that together, here's what God said to that serpent. And Adam and Eve heard it thousands and thousands of years ago. God said to that serpent, I'm going to send a male. He's going to be born from a woman. He's not going to have an earthly father. But he's going to be capable of undoing what you and what Adam and Eve have done. Now, centuries later, the prophet Isaiah, realizing somewhat by the Holy Spirit this was a meaning, put it this way. He said in Isaiah 7, 14, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin, someone who's never known a man, shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So now we know this Redeemer is going to be a human being. He's going to be the seed of a woman. He's going to have an earthly mother. But we also know that every child has to have a father, right? Well, if a child does not have an earthly father, that only leaves one other kind of father left, and that is a heavenly father. And so this son who's going to come is going to be the seed of an earthly mother. He's going to be the offspring of a heavenly father father. Now, God prophesied that when this seed of the woman would come, here's what God prophesied. He said, two bruisings are going to take place. He, that is, this one I'm going to send, he shall bruise your head, and you, that is the serpent, Satan, you shall bruise his heel. So, there's going to be two bruisings. There's going to be the bruising of the serpent's head, and there's going to be the bruising of the Savior's heel. Now, that makes sense. Because if you're walking along a path in the woods or whatever, where normally would a snake, a snake strike you? He would normally strike you in the foot. Or he would strike you on the heel of the foot. That's exactly what happened at the cross when God allowed Jesus to bear the full poison of our sin. Because from the moment that Adam and Eve fell and rebelled against God, the greatest need the world has ever had is a Savior who would deal with our sin. So this Savior was prophesied, and this Savior was promised in this verse of Scripture, and Jesus is the fulfillment of that prophecy, and Jesus is the keeping of that promise. That's why we celebrate Christmas, because Christmas not only solves the problem of our sin, Christmas meets the need, uh, need of a Savior, but there's three dimensions. So Christmas not only solves our problem of sin, Christmas not only meets our need for a Savior, Christmas provides us the gift of salvation. Now, what's this? Remember, I told you there were two bruisings. He said, okay, you're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to bruise your head. Now, I think all of us in this room are smart enough to know. You don't have to be a doctor to figure out. If you said to me, I'm going to bruise one or two parts of your body, I'm going to bruise your brain, or I'm going to bruise your heel, I say, I'll take the heel. The bruising of the brain, the bruising of the head is far more serious than the bru bruising of the foot. One can cripple you, the other can kill you. And now we look back and we get it. We say, oh, I, now I understand. The light's coming on. It was at the cross that the serpent bruised the heel of Jesus. 
But it was through the empty tomb and the resurrection that the Savior bruised the head of the serpent. It was through the cross and the resurrection that Jesus took the sting out of death and Jesus took the power out of sin. And now we know because of Christmas, the failure of in the Garden of Eden was neither fatal nor was it final. The gig was not up. Now, you may have heard of Genesis 3.15 referred to as the first Christmas story, but that's what it is because it is the very first verse in the Bible that tells us about a Savior who would bring salvation from our sin. Now, let me kind of bring this up to date because I realize when you come here to hear a Christmas message, you know, during this time of year, probably that would be the last place you thought we would turn. You thought, we're not going all the way back to the book of Genesis. I mean, I'm looking for something out of Matthew and Luke, and I'm looking for the wise men and the shepherds, and I'm looking for Caesar Augustus and all of that. So you go all the way back. Well, okay, let's just kind of bring it up to kind of what you were expecting. Let me show you how this works. Probably the most familiar Christmas verse in all of the Bible. I think we would agree. I think there are a lot of people that don't even know Jesus or know much about Jesus. Maybe have never even read a Bible. Most people recognize this verse when they hear it. And it probably is the most familiar verse of all, right? Luke 2.11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, You've read that many times. I've read it many times. You've heard it many times. I've heard it many times. But I want to ask you a question. Have you really examined what the angel said? And have you ever thought about the order in which he said it? You say, I'm not following. Now, let's read it again. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a, what's that word? Savior. Now, let me stop right there. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a. Now, he could have put, the next word could have been, he could have said anything he wanted to say. He could have put Lord first. He could have put Christ first. He could have put King. He could have put Redeemer. He he could have put ruler. But he purposely, first things out of the first thing he wants us to hear, first word he wants us to know. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. Now, why does he put that first? I don't think it's coincidence. I think everything's important. In the Greek language, it comes first. Why did he say it first? I mean, Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is our Redeemer. Redeemer. Jesus is the Christ. He is the promised Messiah. That's a big deal. But he says, no, the first thing I want you to understand about Jesus, the number one thing to get in your mind, he is the Savior. All right, question. Why did he do that? Why does he say when it comes to Christmas, we're not talking about Easter. We're not talking about Good Friday. I'm talking about Christmas. Why does he say when it comes to Christmas, the first word I want to always come into your mind is the word Savior? Here's why. Because the first key to understand both who Jesus is and why Christmas is so necessary is because he is first and foremost our Savior. And understanding who Jesus is and why Christmas was even necessary is because he is the Savior 
who brings us salvation from our sin. Because I want to go all the way back and say this in another way. Go all the way back to the beginning of the human race and from Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, at that moment, the greatest need of the human race was not a life coach. The greatest need of the human race was not a financial advisor. The greatest need of the human race was not a political leader. The greatest need of the human race was a savior. A savior is someone who saves you from something. And what this savior saves us from is sin. And what he saves us with is salvation. So here's what I'm trying to get you to see this morning. You'll never understand this whole gig about Christmas. You'll never understand why we celebrate it. You'll never understand why we focus on it. You'll never understand why we sing about it. You will never understand why we preach about it. You won't even understand why it's even necessary until you get this. Everyone on this planet is a sinner who needs a Savior who can provide salvation. Would you just read that with me? Everyone on this planet is a sinner who needs a Savior who can provide salvation. The Christmas story tells us every year, our number one need, my number one need, your number one need, our number one need is salvation because our number one problem is sin. Every year I get this question, every single year. Sometimes I get it in email. About four weeks ago, somebody came up the lobby and asked me this question, and I, I know I'm gonna get it every year. I, I'm, I'm ready for it. They, they'll come up and they'll ask this question. Why do we celebrate Christmas on December the 25th? Why, why do we celebrate Christmas? Why not March the 3rd? Why not? I, I wish we could replace April the 15th with Christmas, personally. Why do we celebrate Christmas on December the 25th? Every time I get asked that question, I don't ever say this because I don't want to come across as a smart aleck. I'm not like Richard Dodson and some of you other people in this room. But here's what I want to say. Here's really what, what I really want to say. What I really want to say is, there's a bigger question you really ought to be asking. The question is not, why do we celebrate Christmas on December the 25th? To me, if I were an unbeliever, this is a question I'd be asking. Why do we celebrate Christmas at all? Why do we even fool with it? Why do we even bother with it. And I'm telling you, you will never truly understand the story of Christmas until you see it in 3D. As a matter of fact, you don't understand Christmas. And you will never understand Christmas until you can say four words and mean them. And here they are. I need a Savior. If you can't say that, or you haven't said that, or you can't say that and mean it, you are clueless about Christmas. Because every time you see a tree twinkling and the lights glowing and you hear the Christmas music playing and you see Santa Claus sitting in a chair, or you hear about Frosty, or you hear about Jack, or you watch Rudolph, you can do all that you want to. But there's one thing you can't run away from and you can't hide from. 
Every year Christmas rolls around and you see those manger scenes and you see that baby surrounded by those wise men and you see that baby surrounded by those shepherds and you see that angelic choir singing. It's all screaming out at every one of us. We need a Savior. And when you finally come to that point where you realize, I need a Savior, that is when you begin to see Christmas in 3D. And that's, the when, that's when you'll begin to see Christmas the way it should be. So I just want to ask you a question. All of you in this room, you're at Mill Creek, you're watching online. I don't want this service to end without you really grasping what I'm telling you. I don't care what your bloodline is. I don't care what your heritage is. I don't care who your dad and mom was. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what you've accomplished in life. I don't care how many good things you've done for other people. You and I need a Savior. And you'll never understand Christmas. You'll never understand this world. You'll never understand you. And you'll never be what you should have been. And you'll never do what you should have done until you not only realize you need a Savior, but you receive that Savior into your heart. So would you bow your heads and close your eyes? I wonder how many of you would say this right now. Say this to me. I just wonder how many of you would do this.